Author Anne-Marie MacDonald noted, it's important to attend funerals. It is important to view the body, they say, and to see it committed to earth or fire, because unless you do that, the loved one dies for you again and again. Close quote. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. In Go Down Moses, the final chapter of his novel, Go Down Moses, William Faulkner tells us the story about a funeral. The deceased is a young man executed in Chicago for murder. Home is back in Mississippi, and his grandmother, who raised him, is determined to bring him home to bury him. For that, she'll need a great deal of help. Dr. Virginia Arbery gave the 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought this introduction to Faulkner's story. Let me begin with some obvious contrast between the Greek play set in the ancient and problematic city of Thebes and the story called Go Down Moses, the title of a famous Negro spiritual and the one chosen by William Faulkner for his 1942 novel set in Yoknapatawpha County, the county seat of Jefferson, Mississippi. We'll compare two figures, a criminal with a record of burglary and assault, a murderer at that, fatherless, exiled from his familiar surroundings to the big northern city of Chicago. The other, a princess, of whom we have studied, one who seeks to honor a treacherous brother who has spent much of her short life protecting and guiding her exiled father, a former king, who was also her brother. Antigone, this young girl, comes home only to be condemned to death by her uncle, the new king for her breaking his law not to bury the traitor, killed by their brother, also killed in the mortal contest. That child, compared to the electrocution of the slick numbers player who shot dead a Chicago cop, returning home to Jefferson in a fine coffin covered with flowers, met by a whole town, and processed slowly, ceremonially, around the county courthouse and then to his rural home. Whereas the princess receives no support from her fellow Thebans as she enters her stony cave. Just like her arrogant father, they say about her, some seed, not only violent, but dangerous and bad says the town lawyer about William Worship Beecham. The remarkable formal homecoming for Samuel's corpse, the remains of a boy descended from a former slave class, bears pondering. Of course, what demands further examination is the parallel between Antigone who has no support from her fellow Thebans, who, despite her heroic piety, is unsuccessful in bucking up against the law to honor the corpse of her rebellious brother. That girl, 
and the fragile old grandmother, no bigger than a 10-year-old child herself, Molly Beecham, who successfully garners the support both of the law and of the town people's goodwill to bring home the grandson she raised, whom she calls my Benjamin. Before we turn to Faulkner's story, I'd like to frame the discussion of these two different responses to the deaths of two reprobates within the theme of decorum. Now, we normally pair weddings with decorum. My husband, Glenn, and I have seven daughters, and we have planned six weddings, though we only threw four. One eloped four months beforehand. For the father of the bride to be told by a guest that he has accomplished hosting a very efficient wedding is no compliment. What a beautiful wedding is the desired response. John Crow Ransom, in his essay, Forms and Citizens, writes about the difference between aesthetic forms, which are governed by restraint, and work forms or economic forms, which serve some useful purpose and are judged by their efficiency. He writes, aesthetic forms do not butter our bread and they delay the eating of it. They stand between the individual and his natural object and impose a check upon his action, unquote. The practical forms developed around baking, plowing, and making war do owe to the instruction of previous generations, but differently than do the aesthetic forms, which derive slowly, arising organically from the more rooted realm of tradition. Ransom goes on to contrast the, quote, stock services, unquote, with the ritualized forms gradually accrued from tradition, their very source. He writes, to the concept of direct action, the old society, the directed and hierarchical one, opposed the concept of aesthetic experience as a true opposite and checked the one in order to induce the other. They fancied that the indissolubility of societies might depend as much on the definition they gave to play as on the definition they gave to labor, unquote. Ransom goes on to observe that modern societies, he's writing in the 1930s, regard rituals and conventions as, quote, empty forms and ceremonies, unquote. Modernity invites men to be themselves, encourages them to destroy old arts and customs. Ransom makes a distinction between one he calls the natural man asserting his rights to grasp his desires and thus claiming to be more of an individual and the, and the traditional one who, who actually becomes more of an individual through a code of manners above the appetitive and economic life. He offers two examples, one the relation between man and woman, woman, and the other between the living and the dead. So the man going directly to his object 
in this life in the raw for the natural man approaches her simply as the object of his desire, getting her directly. We can imagine what this direct acquisition of his desired object looks like. On the other hand, the one who goes through ceremony or a code of manners, quote, does this. Ransom writes, he must approach her with ceremony and pay her a fastidious courtship, unquote. Desire will take a, quote, circuitous road and become a romance, unquote. Both kinds of men, the natural and the traditional, desire their object. But the woman pursued under restraint becomes a person and an aesthetic object, therefore a richer object, Ransom writes. The second area Ransom examines is that of a funeral informed by the field of religion. Here, the object of attention is the dead body of a friend, a parent, a child, a wife. He owes his code of manners to the manners of the religious society of ancient standing, which offer him a ritual. We'll recall that the minimal forms in the community depicted in Tolstoy's story, The Death of Ivan Illich, those minimal forms have become so hollowed out that mourners act decorously without the substance of those forms. And so, for instance, Tolstoy's friend worries about whether he's made enough signs of the cross. My own experience of forms, both observed and violated, makes me recall the passing of my parents, both near the same day, buried together. My father's brother, while I was praying at my father's open coffin, knelt next to me, disturbing my prayer. He chided me for the humble attire that I had buried my father in instead of his usual performance tuxedo. He told me about stories from their youths disturbing even more my prayers for my father, and I asked him to leave. This was a breach, was it not, of decorum? Or earlier, before my father's actual demise, while he was dying, and my sister and I were praying and holding his hands a chaplain in the secular hospital in which he was, smelling the very scent of death, barged in and told us, I think I, I know the Our Father. I'm Jewish, not Catholic, but let's say the Our Father together. Would you like to? We asked her very kindly to leave us alone. This too, it seemed to me, was a breach of decorum. 
Ransom explains, quote, the religious society exists in order to serve man in this crisis. Freed from his desolation by its virtue, he is not obliged now to run and throw himself upon the body in an ecstasy of grief, nor to go apart and brood upon the riddle of mortality, which may be the way of madness. Of course, Hamlet does both. No, the man in this religious society is led through the form of a pageant of grief, lovingly staged and attended by the religious community. His own grief expands, Ransom writes, is lightened, and the griever no longer has to be explosive or obsessive. Unquote. But what interests us, it seems to me, is the fact that this preoccupation with the deadness of the body is broken, as Ransom writes, by his, quote, participation in the pageantry and his bleak situation elaborated with such rich detail that it becomes massive, substantial, and sufficient, unquote. Of course, in part, what Ransom is talking about is how to handle sentiment, emotion, those powerful, irrational emotions that must be given form. Antigone declares that she is made for love, that she acts out of love. Her forms of burial reflect her love, not her resistance to the law. In Faulkner's short story within the novel, Go Down Moses, called by the same title, Faulkner's Molly is the feminine center, identified with the hearth, with continuity, stability, constancy, refuge, and warmth. So let's return to the story keeping Ransom in mind. Molly Beecham loves her grandson. The issue of her daughter, dead in childbirth, and his father, one who's fled from his responsibility. She loves him so much that she blames another she has raised and loved, whose mother also died in childbirth. This one, the privileged white boy, as we say these days, the son of the legal inheritor of the former plantation, now a farm with tenants. I'll talk more about this Molly and her rearing of this other boy in a moment. That white boy, the Roth Edmonds, Gavin Stevens refers to in the story, exacerbated by his stealing from the commissary, kicks the so-called Benjamin off the property from there to the town of Jefferson, where the grandson is repeatedly jailed and then paradoxically said to be sold into slavery of the north to Egypt, Molly says. Pharaoh got him. The mantra that she repeats over and over again to Gavin Stevens is revelatory. It was Roth Edmund sold him, she said, sold him in Egypt. 
I don't know where he is. I just know Sparrow got him. And you, the law, I want to find my boy. Pharaoh got him. The mantra Molly repeats with her white sister, as Miss Worsham calls herself, is worth recalling. The brilliant Stevens, almost stupid before the mantra, observes the old white lady's face, which, quote, embodied some old, timeless female affinity for blood and grief. They say together, sold my Benjamin, sold my Benjamin. Sold him in Egypt, Worsham said. Roth Edmund sold my Benjamin, sold him to Pharaoh, sold him to Pharaoh, and now he dead. Sold my Benjamin, sold him in Egypt, sold him in Egypt, oh yes, Lord. It's our grief, Miss Worsham tells the well-meaning Stevens, who, though his actions are efficacious in galvanizing the town's support to bring the grandson home for her, Miss Worsham, and Miss Worsham finds himself suffocating in the ritual chant. He must run out for air, feeling keenly that he has intruded on the ritual, the ceremonial and communal strophe and antistrophe before the circle of mourners, kin, black and white, around the Worsham hearth, still smoldering in the July heat. The ties among these white and black folk are almost edible, if you can infer my meaning. Molly's brother, Hap Worsham, as the head and face of a Roman general, Faulkner writes. His formidable wife is mostly white. Molly and Miss Worsham are born in the same month, growing up as sisters. Just how are we to understand this, quote, old, timeless female affinity for blood and grief? Let's listen to a passage earlier in the novel in a section called The Fire and the Hearth, where a younger Molly, who herself has just given birth, is given the orth orphaned Roth to nurse and raise. In this scene, Roth reflects on the woman who raised him with her own son. She has been married 45 years to Lucas, who himself was raised with his own father, Cass, as Roth was raised with Molly's son, Henry. Roth is puzzled, deeply concerned in this passage, over the fact that the older Molly wants a vos from Lucas, with whom he is furious, because Lucas is obsessed with finding buried money on the property he farms, and which he has run while having a still for years on the farm's property. Roth says to himself, and now this breaking up after 45 years, the home of the woman who had been the only mother he, Edmonds, ever knew, who had raised him, fed him from her own breast as she was actually doing her own child, who had surrounded him always with care, 
for his physical body and for his spirit too, teaching him his manners, behavior, to be gentle with his inferiors, honorable with his equals, generous to the weak and considerate of the aged, considerate, truthful, and brave to all who had given him the motherless without stint or expectation of reward that constant and abiding devotion and love which existed nowhere else in this world for him." Unquote. That passage in the novel paired with Faulkner's dedication of the whole novel to Mamie, Carolyn Barr, 1840 to 1940, begins to suggest just how powerful this feminine affinity for blood and grief is. These furies turned into the humanities, perhaps by suffering and loss, by endurance and hope, by Christianity, shape a whole culture. Again, that dedication to Mammy, Carolyn Barr, who was born in slavery and gave to my family a fidelity without stint or calculation of recompense into my childhood an immeasurable devotion and love. In this last story of a long and complicated novel, Gavin Stevens, the white-haired embodiment of the law, a thoroughly non-Creon-like figure, tries to fathom the motivation and the intuition and the desire of the old matriarch who shows up in his office having walked 17 miles from the country on a sweltering Mississippi July day to enlist his support. She doesn't even know his grand, her grandson is dead. She feels it. The story makes clear that she in no way knows the immediate cause of his death. She comes to Stephen because he is the law. And who is he, this Stevens? Quote, Phi Beta Kappa, Harvard, PhD, Heidelberg, whose office was his hobby, although it made his living for him, and whose serious vocation was a 22-year-old unfinished translation of the Old Testament back into classic Greek. One might ask, why does he go back to the county seat of Yatnapatawpha County, Mississippi? What kind of ties are strong enough to pull him back home when he could be anywhere? And here he is, doing the bidding of two withered old ladies, one black, one white, to bring home a worthless ne'er-do-well, quote, whose face was black, smooth, impenetrable. Unquote. A man I myself have seen growing up many times on the streets of the south side of Chicago. The face, Egyptian really. Quote, the hair had been treated so that it had covered the skull like a cap in a single neat ridged sweep with the appearance of having been lacquered, the part trimmed with a razor so that the head resembled a bronze head imperishable and enduring, unquote. He's become one of the corrupted ones by the enslaving class of the North, Egypt, 
having been abandoned by his caretakers, the ones who have an obligation to save him for crimes in the South that will become augmented exponentially there in the North. Gavin, an echo of Sir Gawain, who saves King Arthur, is in the role of the savior, a, a savior of one saved too late for a good life, but at least able to be ensured a beautiful funeral. Gavin Stevens is, as he says to himself, the catapult to the slain wolf. These associations with the biblical story of the family of Abraham, the people of Israel, and the enslavers, oppressors, Egypt's, oppressors of Egypt are puzzling, and we must attempt to unravel them in seminar. In any case, you, you can recount there all the accommodations that Stevens makes to Auntie, as he calls Molly, both in his own personal expenses and in his garnering of the town's support to bring him home. In addition to his enlisting the town's editor to hide the truth from Molly, who thinks she would insist on the rituals of a fine burial, whether or not she knew the truth of his being a murderer. You can add to your considerations Stephen's tacit agreement to what Miss Worsham offers to contribute to the expenses as if her pittance were sufficient. Miss Worsham explains that she will want him back home with her, she said. Him, the body, Stevens asks, making us think. Is the corpse the person? Miss Worsham adds, her own dead first child's son. Are we to ask with Stevens, the body? Let's look at the passage on page 357. She will want to take him back home with her he said to himself, him, the body. She watched him. The expression was neither shocked nor disproving. It merely embodied some old, timeless female affinity for blood and grief. Stevens thought, she has walked to town in this heat. Unless Hamp brought her in the buggy he peddles eggs and vegetables from, she said, he is the only child of her oldest daughter, her own dead first child. He must come home. He must come home, Stephen said as quietly. I'll attend to it at once. I'll telephone at once. You are kind. For the first time, she stirred, moved. He watched her hands draw the reticule toward her, clasping it. I will defray the expenses. Can you give me some idea? He looked her straight in the face. He told the lie without batting an eye, quickly and easily. Ten or twelve dollars will cover it. They will furnish a box, and there will only be the transport. A box? Again, she was looking at him, 
with that expression, curious and detached, as though he were a child. He is her grandson, Mr. Stevens. When she took him to raise, she gave him my father's name, Samuel Worsham. Not just a box, Mr. Stevens. I understand that can be done by paying so much a month. Not just a box, Stevens said. He said it in exactly the same tone in which he had said he must come home. In this concluding story of Faulkner's novel, we sense none of the artificiality of empty decorum seen in the death of Ivan Illich. And yet, no funeral could be more staged, but more authentic. No one is hastening to leave to play bridge, as in the Tolstoy story. No, Stephen notices that the whole town watches, white and black, as the hearse and the cars which have waited for the train with the fine coffin, not a box, process through the town. Let's look at that passage together on page 363. Stevens and the editor began to notice the number of people, Negroes and whites both. Then, with the idle white men and youths and small boys, and probably half a hundred Negroes, men and women too, watching quietly, the Negro undertaker's men lifted the gray and silver casket from the train and carried it to the hearse and snatched the wreaths and floral symbols of man's ultimate and inevitable end, briskly out and slid the casket in and flung the flowers back and clamped to the door. Then, with Miss Worsham and the old negress in Stephen's car, with the driver he had hired and, and himself and the editor in the editors, they followed the hearse as it swung into the long hill up from the station, going fast in a whining lower gear until it reached the crest, going pretty fast still, but with an unctuous and almost bishop-like purr until it slowed into the square, crossing it, circling the Confederate monument and the courthouse, while the merchants and clerks and barbers and professional men who had given Stevens the dollars and half dollars and quarters and the ones who had not watched quietly from doors and upstairs windows, swinging then into the street, which at the end of town would become the country road leading to the destination. 17 miles away. And please note the details as the entourage circles that Confederate monument, the defeated people's vestige of a lost cause and the courthouse. In this story, where the former oppressors become the saviors, the protectors of the dead, and the former liberators become the enslavers, perhaps of a far worse pharaoh, we see something as miraculous as Iphigenia rising to accept her death to become the first hero of the Greeks. 
having buried Samuel Worsham Beauchamp. Next week, we'll move to the other side of the grave as we look at how Odysseus, Aeneas, and Dante encountered those long dead. The readings, if you want to read along, are Book 11, lines 1 through 224 of Homer's Odyssey, Book 6, beginning with lines 739 to the end of Virgil's Aeneid, and Conti 15 through 17 of Dante's Paradiso. Let me add, particularly if you're following along with the readings, that next year's Wyoming School of Catholic Thought is tentatively scheduled for June 11 to 16, 2023. You might want to mark it on your calendar. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.